Hello and welcome to episode 168 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. And joining me as always is the flamboyant League Freak. You can find on Twitter at League Freak. How you going there, mate? I'm going very well. Apparently I'm flamboyant. What's uh, that all about? I heard you're wearing fluoro pink pants today. No, I'm actually wearing my uh, Mount Druitt suit, which consists of tracksuit pants. Uggies? No, nah, just great. No, nah, no Uggies. Just thongs. great tracksuit pants. I wear thongs, yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. You, you've got the uh, the work, you know, the work footwear on. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, we've, we've talked about doing this for a while now, so we're going to do an, a history episode. What do you reckon? Yeah, I'm up for that, and this is one where... I'm going to learn a little bit about the game, so I'm really excited about it. Yes, because today we're going to talk about possibly my favourite player who isn't, you know, widely talked about like Daly Messenger, and that's uh, Duncan Thompson. Mm. Um, brief summary here. I mean, he had a, a brain for rugby league as a player, as a coach, as an administrator. Um, he was creative, fast, very successful. And uh, spent most of his life with a bullet in his chest. Now, I'm sure you're going to tell us how he got the bullet in his chest. Oh, yes. Yes, we'll get there, absolutely. Okay. Um, Duncan Thompson was, was a halfback. He was just five foot seven tall, around about 170 centimetres, and 156 pounds, which is around 70 kilos. Sounds pretty lightweight to me. Yeah, that's about the size of Jason Tormalolo's leg. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not much to him. Um, He was born in Warwick in Queensland in 1895, and he worked at the Australian Bank of Commerce in 1911. While at Ipswich, he represented combined country for Queensland in 1913, and then later made it to the Queensland State Team in 1915 at the age of 19, I think it was, almost 20. Um. In 1915, as war broke out, Duncan Thompson decided to uh, join up and serve for the country, but his mother said he was not allowed. So in 1916, after his job transferred him from uh, transferred him to Sydney, uh, he was immediately snapped up by the Ailing North Sydney team. At the end of 1916, he returned to Queensland where he enlisted with the Australian Imperial Forces. He was shot through the chest in the Battle of Dernacourt in 1917, but miraculously survived. Wow. He was informed by doctors in 1917 that a bullet was still lodged in his chest and he would no longer be able to play sport. My guess is he ignored that. that, Otherwise, that's the end of the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he did continue playing. He went back to Australia, um, lined up for Ipswich and Queensland in 1919. He earned a place in the first Australian test team to tour New Zealand in 1919 as well. Uh, On tour, he replaced Arthur Halloway in the third test, which Australia won 34 to 23. He was then selected halfback for the fourth test, which Australia also won 32 to 2. The following year, he moved to Newcastle and played for Newcastle West before moving back to North in the Sydney comp. He captained New South Wales in his first game against his beloved Queensland in 1921. In 1921, Norse finished the season undefeated, claiming their first ever premiership. At the end of the, the season, Thompson was selected in the Australian squad to tour to England. Now, I've got a... I found a lovely little story here. Mm-hmm. It's not so much about what he did on the field. Um, Ian had interviewed Herman Peters, one of Thompson's teammates on the 1921-22 tour. And recounted a, they recounted a story about Duncan Thompson's impressive guile off the field. Yeah. On the team's first Sunday in Harrogate, Yorkshire, on the 21-22 tour, the famous halfback Duncan Thompson pulled Peters and fullback Charles Chook Fraser aside and said, come on, we're going to church. Fraser and Peters were less than keen, but Thompson was a persuasive fellow, and eventually the trio donned their Sunday best and joined the congregation at a nearby church. In his sermon, the minister made several references to the fine young Australians in the congregation. Afterwards, as the boys mixed politely with the local gentry outside the church, they were swamped with invitations. You must come to dinner, gushed the ladies of Harrogate. In the months that followed, the trio dined out many times on the strength of Thompson's tactical move. Wow. <laughs> and Herman Peters said, Duncan was a bit of a fox. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is a man that's worth. You know the the saying 4D chess." He's playing 4D chess back then. <laughs> he was. I, man. I'm impressed. He he was all, he was just constantly ahead of the game. Yeah, yeah. In every part of life. Wow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I thought that was too good a story to leave out. Yeah. Um, in 1922, Norse was sporting possibly the most impressive backline in the competition and maybe even one of the best in rugby league's history. With Harold Horder, Sek Blinkhorn, Duncan Thompson, Herman Peters, Frank Rule, and Dallas Hodgins all in the side, Norse annihilated Glebe 35-3 to in the Premiership final to win their second straight Premiership. Wow. In the last, by the way. Yes. And part of the reason why it was their last is also because of Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1923, North struggled to dominate the competition, but it was their round 14 clash with Glebe at the SCG that proved most damaging because Duncan Thompson, for the first time in his career, was sent off. And it was for allegedly kicking Glebe forward Tom McGrath. The judiciary found Thompson guilty and suspended him for the rest of the season, which I think was... a Two or three games? Wasn't okay. much. Yeah. Spectators, though, claim that the incident was nothing but an accident. Thompson was held back illegally after passing the ball and was trying to free himself when he accidentally struck McGraw in the face. Thompson appealed the suspension and it was reduced but not overturned. Thompson was so irate by the decision that he vowed never to play in Sydney again and he left. Oh, wow. I remember you telling me about that a couple of months ago. Yeah. That was um, very, very controversial, that one, because, um, yeah, and, like, there were a lot of witnesses. Didn't the referee go in as a witness for him? There was somebody, or maybe the the guy that he said, that they said he was supposed to kick, wasn't there someone that went in as yeah, a... I believe there was um, an opposition player who went into went in on his defence. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they still wouldn't wouldn't back out of the, uh, the suspension. Mm. Um. And so it's also been argued many times over that North Sydney never had a halfback that came over anywhere close to Duncan Thompson since then. And we're talking that was 1923 that happened. They had 70, but 76 years of football after that. They never got a, a better halfback and never got one that was close to him. Well, you think about like, I'm trying to think of another North Sydney halfback over the rest of their time in the league. And seriously, Jason Taylor might be the next best. Yeah. Like, there's no one that really jumps out at you, hey? It's pretty crazy thinking. It's, um, I say this not as a dig at Parramatta intentionally anyway, and that is Parramatta, they've had a similar thing when after Peter Sterling left. Mm. They struggled to move on from that, mm-hmm. you know, that legend. And while it hasn't been 70 years since Sterling left, it has been, what, 20-odd, gone on 30-odd? We're creeping along, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Thompson moved back to Toowoomba, and he opened a sports store there. Despite his self-exile from the Sydney Comp, he was still selected in the last two tests against England of 1924. He also played for Queensland again in 1924 and 1925. Um, his arrival in Toowoomba brought immediate success. In 1924, he played for Toowoomba on a contract worth £400 a year. Big man. Yeah. In his first two years there, Toowoomba would deem the greatest team in rugby league. Where? In 1924, they beat England 23-20. They beat Ipswich 21-10, 31-8, and 33-18. They beat New South Wales 16-0. They even beat Victoria 47-18. In 1925, the undefeated run continued with victories over Brisbane, 30-7 and 22-3. Ipswich, 18-13, 51-17 and a three-all draw. And they beat New Zealand, 16-14. The final match of the year for Toowoomba was against the 1925 Sydney Premiers, South Sydney, who are, to this day, the only team to have gone through an entire season and won every single game. So this is going to be the two... Undefeated teams at the same time in Australia face like off. Like the, the Super Bowl. Yeah. And so they played this game to declare the greatest team in Australia and Toowoomba won 12-5. Wow, that's incredible. That Like, that is absolutely incredible, especially for the time, because 
Queensland Rugby League was kind of still establishing itself to a certain extent. Whereas yeah, this, it was it was in the doldrums and, and was just an absolute, absolute whipping boy. Constantly yeah. getting flogged every year. But Thompson arriving in um, in Queensland, along with along with Jimmy Craig, who I will do a, 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 a we'll do a podcast on him too later on. Um, those two men come along and transform Queensland Rugby League. Not not so much single handedly, but they had such a huge impact on the game there. The Queensland went from being whipping boys to being the boys whipping other teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until Dave Brown come along that New South Wales started to claw back some of the territory and, you know, get back in front of Queensland again. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, over a decade away. Yeah. So it was pretty impressive the, the impact he had when he got there. Um, 1925 saw Toowoomba claim the first ever Bolimba Cup, which was a comp play between representatives from Brisbane, Ipswich, and Toowoomba. They won every single honour that was available for them to win. Now, as a player and later on as coach, he coined the term contract football. And this is probably what he's most well known for. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the art of letting the ball beat the man by keeping it moving. Um, I think the thing that is closest to it today that's still around is second phase play. Yeah, yeah. Keeping the ball alive. Um but when he when he you know basically created it, it was quite different to the modern version as possession was much easier to maintain in rugby league in the twenties than it is now. Mm-hmm. Like now, it's very much a fifty fifty thing. Whereas back then, there's only a tackle, so it's sort of I dare say the game in the twenties more resembled rugby union than it does today's rugby league. Yeah, and like it, it's interesting because. You know, if you if you apply enough second phase play to unlimited tackles, you're going to run the opposition around. They're going to be stuffed, and that that was obviously a tactic that he brought in um, and was known for. And like, I mean, obvious the results are there. It must have been devastating. It just must have been such a completely different way compared to how everyone else was playing. Oh, it definitely was. Definitely was because defense was the backbone of a good team. Mm. You have good defense, then you'd score points off the back of it. Um, but this one was it was almost like a complete flip of that. Mm. And this is where you didn't have to throw the ball around in the, in the game back in the 20s. You just had to hold, you know, keep possession. You'd eventually get to the other end, and then you could mm. kick a field goal or score a try. Mm. Basically what they did back and, then. And it's interesting the way it was described, too, that... Uh, you know, letting the ball beat the man. Because I guess back then, as you say, it, they were playing a lot of safe footy. And there would have been a lot of, um, you know, I guess I guess the way we would look at it would have been just hit up football. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just get it to your forwards, hit it up. And, and don't do too much with it until you see something open up later on in what we would call the tackle count, but they, there's not really a tackle count at all because it's unlimited footy. Um, whereas it sounds like they were looking to do things like draw and pass and just things that we take for granted now. Um, it's really interesting the way it's described. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it, it was, it brought flair and excitement to a game which was, uh, it, you know, compared to rugby union, which was it's, it's obviously it's relative. Mm. Rugby league was faster, mm. but this just took it to another level. Mm-hmm. So it was Thompson's theory that um, every player had a contract to do something creative when they had the ball in hand, and that mm-hmm. contract was to position the man beside him to carry on the play, not just keep the ball moving, but you also had to position them so that they could have the best opportunity to set up the man beside them to keep the play moving, um, which is a lot, you know, that that's as it evolved, obviously, and so that's a lot more closely linked to modern-day second-phase play, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the 1925 season, Duncan Thompson retired from rugby league as a player and took up a brief, a brief time of playing tennis, lawn bowls, and golf, where he actually got his handicap down to three. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, it's quite prominent 
uh, tennis player and lawn bowler as well. I think you, I think he played a bit of rep lawn bowls. Oh, really? That's interesting. Um, but uh, the being being shot obviously didn't deter him because he decided to return to national service during the Second World War, and this time he served as an amenities officer in Townsville and then in Papua New Guinea. Um, so not not quite on the front line, but still still passionate to serve in whatever way he could. Yeah, and doing his part. Yeah. Um, and with that, you start to see how much this man gave of himself to things that mattered to him. Yeah, he did. it sounds like he, I mean, when there was something that he got, he got involved in things, you know, he didn't just sit back and, you know, just, you know, go along for the ride, did he? No, no, it was like, if I'm if I'm doing this, I'm doing it all the way through till till I'm satisfied that it's been done properly. Mm. And just like he did as a player, as a coach, Thompson was also undefeated when it came to war. <laughs> two for two, nice. Two wars, two wins. Excellent. And survived both. Yeah. Um, the returning back home, um, so you know the 1940s, he. Ease himself back into to football as a coach. And then in 1951, he became the head coach for Toowoomba mm-hmm. and instantly led them to six consecutive Balimba Cup titles from 1951 to 56, oh. which then saw him get named as the coach of the Queensland State side in 1954. One of his uh, star players in the early 50s was future test player and coach Don Ferner. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, and Donna obviously um, was, um, you know, he's very passionate about the way Duncan Thompson did things and and implemented a lot of his coachings that he learned through him, you know, through the coaching he did later on as well. Yeah, and there's, I mean, that lineage is right there. Like, there's a lot of uh, coaches that uh, will coach, people that would go on to coach that uh, played under Don Ferner that were assistant coaches to Don Ferner. He was, uh, I mean, I believe he was the um, team manager for the Kangaroos for a long time as well. Correct, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's something that Duncan Thompson did too. He was also a manager as well as a coach. Mm-hmm. There's nothing he didn't do. Um, in early 1955, Thompson was elected as an Australian test selector. Um, this saw him decide, uh, choosing to turn down coaching Queensland in 1955 in order to focus on being a test selector and I suppose to also be impartial as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Isn't um, it interesting that back then being a test selector was that important and, and that much of a role that you would have to stand down like that? Yeah, it was a coveted role. Mm. Really it really was. was. I mean, it was up until, I feel like it was up until about the mid-90s as well. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, no one knows who the selectors are other than the coach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so when he became Australian Test Selector, he was still a Queensland State Selector. But uh, it didn't end there. At the end of the 1955 season, despite having those two jobs, he then became president of the Toowoomba Rugby League. Wow. He's just a busy man. Yeah, he's um, done a lot. <laughs> so... For a long time, and I think it might have even been up until Mal Meninga came along, Duncan Thompson was the was Queensland's most successful coach. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Now, when I, like I don't think a lot of people realise that before State of Origin came in, for the most part, Queensland weren't were just not in the contest apart from certain points in their history. Now, obviously, when he was the coach, that was one of the points in their history where they were winning games. Yeah, in the in the fifties, they were maybe. I mean, they were winning games. They weren't winning too many series, mm-hmm. but they were not being beaten. So they they won the nineteen fifty one series, lost in fifty two. Fifty three was drawn to two games apiece. Mm-hmm. Fifty four went to New South Wales. Fifty five was drawn again. Um, so that's. That was his time there. So they had one win, two losses, and two draws, which was not too bad for Queensland. Yeah. Um, Because their only genuine successful period was from 1923 to 1932. 
mm-hmm. where they only lost three series in those, in those years. Mm-hmm. Other than that, um, well, after 1932, they won one, two, three, four, four series between 32 and 81. Wow, that's incredible. They were yeah. the good old days. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> were they were. Um, so, yeah, he was... Because of that, he was also seen as a, you know, the right option, I guess, to be a team a team or tour manager. Mm-hmm. And they did this weird thing in 1958 when Great Britain came and toured to Australia. And the, the governing body of the game decided that um, Norm Robinson was going to be the team manager for the test in Sydney and Duncan Thompson would be the manager for the test in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And for what reason, I don't know. Um, Norm Robinson was quite, I suppose, confused and maybe a bit irritated by it. Mm-hmm. And Duncan Thompson on a ground of principle said, why should I come in and do this when you've got someone perfectly fine as Norm Robinson who's been doing it, you know, without any issue before me. Mm-hmm. Why should he not come up for one game? I don't yeah, understand. That's so, a good one. On a, I, on a field of I... principle, Thompson stood down from that role. Oh, wow. That's that's really good of him. Mm. Um, the only thing I could think of is that maybe they thought that having a team manager that kind of knew the local air and stuff would have been good. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. It may have been something that was um, worth considering, I guess, in the really early days of the game. Yeah. So in that 19, 1908 to 1920 period, yeah. you would often find a lot of Australian teams would look very different when they played the testing Brisbane because mm-hmm. they'd pick more Queensland players so they didn't have players didn't have to travel so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they'd often have one test in Brisbane that have the the Queensland-based players there, and then they come back to Sydney and they'd have, essentially, given that New South Wales was so much more dominant, that would be the A-team would play in the Sydney test. Yeah. Um, but in, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, you can fly around and it's not going to cost that much to travel, it's not going to take that much time, and the game is doing pretty damn well. Mm-hmm. It was just a bit confusing. Yeah, um, I wonder why. I wonder. I would love to know why they thought mm, it was a good idea. Yeah, it's. Um, I'll look into it a bit first. What else I can find out? Because it was just a. It was a really odd thing that happened, and I've not seen it before. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Thompson's coaching was obviously so successful, not just with results on the field, but um, his ability to improve players as well. That a number of players from all over the country would often relocate to Toowoomba just to learn from him. Wow. Um, and there's been many articles I've come across where, which talk about plays, not just improving under him, but with many journalists, and they were proper journalists back then, mm-hmm. who were respected because they were good at what they did. Yeah. Um, they dubbed these plays Disciples of Thompson's Coaching School. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. And because, because, like with that lineage of, of coaching knowledge that obviously comes from him. and But it was acknowledged at the time. Like, I, I think sometimes these things, obviously history shows them out over time when you see a coach that has players that, former players that go on to be great coaches. But at the time, people could see it happening. Yeah. Yeah, it was... And he was the only real genuine coach that the game had had that had that impact on players, mm-hmm. that they would travel, you know, as far as they could to, to go there. A lot of them would pay for the money, you know, pay for the travel to get there out of their own pocket just to go there and be coached by him. Yeah, and this was at a period where, like, um, captain coaches were very, very common. Mm. So the role of a coach, it was... It wasn't like we see today where a coach is like a former player that has had a lot of experience in being assistant coaches and coaching in lower grades and stuff like that. Like there were a lot of different sorts of rugby league coach. But for this, for for Thompson to be like um, seen as someone to go and learn from uh, and 
purely been about the coaching and what he can pass on to you as a player and a coach. Uh, that's really interesting that everyone acknowledged that at the time. Absolutely. Um, possibly the first mentor, like not just a coach, but a mentor. You hear about that. That term goes around a lot. A lot of people attach that to Wayne Bennett mm-hmm. and Craig Bellamy. Mm-hmm. Call them mentors. They don't just teach them how to play footy good, but they teach them how to be better humans and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, in 1960, Duncan Thompson was awarded an MBE for services to rugby league. Wow, that's pretty cool. So he would have been, yeah, that would have been about 40, 45 years mm-hmm. he'd given to the game as the player, coach, administrator. Mm-hmm. Um. In 1968, so this is after about a, just over a decade, he was replaced as the Australian Test Selector um, and then became a respected commentator. Well, there was nothing he didn't do, hey? He just kept going. Yeah. And was good at everything he did. Yeah. Um, there was a test match that was played in, I think it might have been, it was either the 50s or 60s, and it was one of Keith Holman's first ever tests. Mm-hmm. And at halftime, it's, it's been reported in a few newspaper articles that Duncan Thompson went up to Keith Holman and says, mate, the English hang off you when you when you run with the ball. So in the second half, don't worry about passing too much. Just run with the ball as much as you can. Yeah. Holman ended up getting man of the match and Australia won the test. Ah, that's incredible. What a cool story. <laughs> and so it changed the way Holman played as well and took his game to the next level. Yeah. And so... When you look at a lot of commentary that goes on in the 80s um, about who Australia's greatest ever halfback was, it was constantly between Chris McKivitt, mm-hmm. Duncan Thompson, and Keith Holman. Wow. That's very cool. Um, in the 1970s, Thompson helped a young man as he trans- transitioned from being a kangaroo touring winger into becoming a coach, and that man was Wayne Bennett. And Wayne Bennett stated that Thompson was one of his major influences as a coach, as well as the, the likes of um, Jack Gibson, <laughs> and two very different coaching styles. But Wayne Bennett was able to, and had the genius, I guess, to pull the best from both. One was a great man manager, the other one was a great tactician, and he managed to get the best of both of them. Yeah, and it's interesting that, like... Because Wayne, there's a, a lot of things that you've said about Thompson that you hear about Wayne Bennett. And one of the main ones is like under Wayne Bennett and, and as a mentor, you become a better person. And a, a lot of players, you probably don't hear it too much these days, but a lot of players from the 90s used to say that about Bennett especially. Um, and I wonder what it was about Wayne Bennett that, he recognised that he could learn so much from um, those two. Like, I wonder if he... It, it makes you wonder if he, he obviously wanted to be a coach. Did he plan to learn from those two as much as he did? Or was he just lucky that he did learn from those? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think um, I think essentially he sought out Duncan Thompson because he was Duncan Thompson was someone who was always willing to you know, lend a hand to anyone who wanted help. Mm-hmm. He'd, he'd spent his whole life doing that, really, as a, as a coach. Um, so I dare say he would just would have been the first obvious person to go to. Mm. And then when Wayne travelled to Sydney, was coach of Canberra. Mm. Um, you know, Jack Gibson would have been what, only one or two years out of having left Parramatta and about to start coaching the New South Wales Origin side. Yep, and I mean, Wayne Bennett was uh, assistant coach under Don Ferner from memory. That's right, he was. Mm. So, plenty of influence all around there. Yeah. Um, so, I guess that's probably how it worked out, is that, yeah, I don't think Wayne Bennett was ever the sort of person that was afraid of approaching someone and asking for help. Yeah. Um, so, that's probably how that all come about, I guess. Now, sadly, on May 17, 1980, Duncan Thompson passed away at uh, in at the hospital in Orkinflower in Brisbane. Now, it doesn't really end there because now we start looking at his legacy after he's passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, at the start of 1981, highly respected commentator Frank Hyde named Duncan Thompson as the greatest halfback in Australian rugby league history. Mm-hmm. 
1983, Bill O'Reilly, former player and later commentator, regarded Duncan Thompson as a rugby league immortal. In 1992, Rugby League Week magazine named their 100 greatest players of all time, as well as their greatest team of all time. And Duncan Thompson was named the halfback in that team. Wow. You think of all the halfbacks we had around the 80s, 70s, 80s, early 90s. Yeah, and like, I mean, some incredible players. And I guess the one that jumps out that his career was finished pretty much by then was uh, Peter Sterling. Yeah, so that's the prominent one. Yeah, and so it's not like there is, uh, there's no one fresh in, in you know, people's mm. minds. Yeah, the recency bias right there would be pushing Sterling hard all the way. Yeah, yeah. And yet Thompson, who'd been retired for nearly 80 years, mm-hmm. still got the nod. Yeah, it's amazing. And this is this is one of the reasons why I'm so keen on having Duncan Thompson as an immortal, because he's got that legacy as being not just a great coach, not just being a great player when he did play, but still regarded as one of the best, despite being, you know, having to contend with the likes of Alan Langer, Ricky Stewart, Peter Sterling, all mm-hmm. either at the peaks of their careers, just before their peaks, or just after their careers have pretty much come to an end. So you can have a lot of recency bias towards those three players, and yet he's still regarded as better than them. And the only player to beat him, to knock him off that perch, was Andrew Johns. Now, what year did that happen? About 2006. That's in. That's just insane. Yeah. And this is the thing. The fact that he impacted the playing and coaching careers of players like, you know, Wayne Bennett, Don Ferner, you just know that the way they coached was inspired by the way Thompson taught them. Mm-hmm. Not entirely, but, you know, a portion of what they do comes from what Thompson taught them. And so the players that they coach, if they become coaches, it lives on through them. And it's just a it's a constant evolution that keeps going. But the basis of that it still comes back to what Thompson had taught someone prior to that. And because Wayne Bennett's still coaching today, that legacy of Duncan Thompson's is still seen in the NRL today to some extent. Yeah, and even like... You think about it this way, like, you know, Don Ferner as well, you put him in there. And, I mean, I guess that that goes towards a lot of former Canberra players that would go on to become coaches. Yeah. Um, I mean, you even look at Bellamy, who was an assistant coach under Wayne Bennett for a little while there. Um, you look at the, you know, new set, uh, the, sorry, the Queensland coach and Kevin Walters from Wayne Bennett. It, like, and, it just goes on and on and on. And the test coach, Mal Meninga. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mal Meninga was coached by both Ferner and, and um, Bennett. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it, it's it's so cool that that sort of coaching lineage carries on. And with how big it is now, it, it it's fair to say it'll probably always be part of their game's coaching fabric. Absolutely. And the fact that it was... Um, you know, what the the big thing he brought to the game was excitement. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's one thing that's hard to it's just hard to forget that, and the fact that it's still seen today in some sets just in second phase play. Mm. It, it's amazing to think that for one aspect of play that isn't because of a rule change, but because of someone being ingenious, you can track it down to one player. Mm-hmm. Like that's where it came from. Yeah, just looking from the twenties. Yeah, and just looking at the game differently and trying to work out like where what can we do differently that nobody else is doing but is in within the rules. And that's I mean, that's the genius coach. You know, the the genius coach looks at the rules and and finds ways to to beat everyone else by doing something so different. Um, I, I would love to know what he thought of that great St. George team that won all those premierships in a row, because with it being uh, unlimited in, uh, unlimited tackles, and he would have seen so much of his style of play in those St. George teams, I wonder what he thought about them and the way they played. Oh, yeah, it'd be fantastic to know. I'd also love to know his thoughts on 
um, you know, outside backs because he spent a lot of time with some really good outside backs. Mm-hmm. Um, Harold Horder, Steck Blinkhorn, Cecil Ainsley, a very underrated winger, pro- mm. prolific try scorer, up there with the best ever. Um, to have those as as your outside men who you can go to and just give it to an absolute speedster who knows how to get across the line. Um, that That's the end result of having very good contract football or second-phase play. Mm-hmm. In the end, you've brought all the defenders infield and your outside men get the ball and they can just go straight downfield, go as fast as they want and get to the trial lines, put the points on the board. Yeah. Um, and the fact that this concept that he came up with in the 20s was able to survive limited tackles and then the 10-meter rule. Mm. And is still today a tactic that teams can struggle to defend against. Genius. Yeah, it really is. And it's like, it's a bedrock part of the game as well. It, it's just incredible. It really is. So, um, I found an article from 1993 where Roy Masters um, wrote a piece where he pretty much revealed that Duncan Thompson was a coach well ahead of his time and explained that many prominent people in the game labeled Thompson as the father of modern football. Wow. (laughs) He fathered it, you know, 40, 50 years before it was born. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what he would be like. I wonder what he would do with a, a current NRL team. It'd be fascinating to know what he would do, especially. I, I often wonder. There, there are some players and there are some coaches. You just wonder how much magic could they have done if they had have had six tackle rule and a ten meter rule yeah. at the same time of the day. Yeah, that turnover in possession, and you know the the balance in in possession as well um it, it would be really interesting because i always find that uh i the thing that i like about the way the rules have been in rugby league over the last few years is you do have teams that can have different styles and not everyone does that there's a lot of teams with very similar styles but the ones that have different styles they're the the clashes i like seeing seeing what works what doesn't work and uh you know, it's like the boxing fights, you know, it, it's the clashes make the fight. The clash of styles make the fight. Um, I wonder how he would look at the modern day rules and how everyone was playing and the gaps in uh, styles that he would maybe give a go and try out. It'd be really interesting to see. I'd be absolutely fascinating. Um, I wish there was footage of him playing. Mm. That um, you know, that was easy to find, I guess, because you know, just everything about him and, and the stuff that he did just comes across as just pure genius. Mm-hmm. Just he generally was ahead of his time in a way that no one else has ever been. And to me, it is it's criminal that he's not regarded as an immortal. How can you have a legacy that goes on for it's nearly a hundred years now? Mm-hmm. has no signs of disappearing and no. not be considered immortal. He did it all as a player, as a coach, as a selector. He got an MBE for his services to the game. He was a commentator. You know, he covered every aspect you could possibly play in this game. And I, it just baffles if, me. Yeah, I wonder if some of it is because, I mean, and obviously had he had success in the Sydney competition. But I wonder if that outstanding success that he had in Queensland, if that works against him quite a lot. I wonder if his decision in 1923 to tell Sydney to go shove it after he got sent off mm-hmm. had an impact. That, that's where I'm at. Cause it's, but the, the Sydney game didn't shun him. They didn't criticise him. They didn't go after him. They didn't put hate on him or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I do often wonder whether, you know, the, the Sydney game at times, especially in the 20s, was was a bit insular. Yep. Um, my, if anyone's read my piece on the first ever women's game of rugby league, you can see it there. 
that the New South Wales Rugby League even felt threatened when uh, women put on an exhibition game and it drew a massive crowd and they went, oh shit, this is a threat. And they pulled out of it and just went, we're not going to give this any more support. They were very, very protective of their own competition and their own game, in my view. And I wonder if him, you know, arcing up and pushing back against them and, and heading back to Queensland is something that sort of, I suppose, got him out of favour with a few people for a while there. But, you know, that's not something that lives on today. You know, you don't have that sort of bias and, and derision, I guess, that goes on between the states at an administrator level anymore. Not no. like it used to be. Yeah, like, and that's what makes it so interesting. And look, we, you and me had the discussion a couple of podcasts ago about um, if to be an immortal, if it should just be what you did on the field or if it should be other things on top of that as well. And I know you've you felt like it should just be what you did on the field. And I, to a certain extent, I agree with that. But Thompson makes a really good case for it should all count. Because, I mean, as, as a player, unquestionably one of the greats. But if you add the layer of what he did in everything he did, I mean, as a, a an administrator, as a coach, as a commentator, as a team manager, as a team selector for the Australian team. If you added all of that on, it's just a a no-brainer. He should be an immortal. And I I wonder if because his playing career was so far back and maybe it's just a case of, like, the people that saw him play, they're not around anymore. So what he did on the field is... The game has lost touch with what he actually did on the field. That's, I wonder if that that's is largely it, that is largely what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and the only players we've got from back then who have a legacy that's lived on have been Dally Messenger, Dave Brown, Frank Birch. Yeah, it's it's not very many at all. No, and if you were to and you you've only just look at the numbers and the facts of his story without even watching him play, you just look at the facts and the amount of success that came around him and the amount of success that he was able to, I suppose, for lack of a better term, breed through new players and new coaches and, you know, having that legacy continuing on and how he's helped nurture new people and new coaches and new players to get them better, get them to be the best at what they do. It's just, to me, it's just, you know, you just look at the fact that in 1992 he was still regarded as Australia's greatest ever halfback. Yeah, that and that's that's that, one that, of the challenging things. You that's know. purely on the field. Yeah, and how can you be considered the game's greatest halfback for you know nearly seventy years, I guess, and not be considered an immortal? Not even in the bloody conversation. It's, yeah, it's it doesn't it doesn't ridiculous. make sense. Yeah, and the the other thing is too, we uh, one of the markers that we use for true greatness is that not only were you a great player yourself, but you made the players around you better. There is nobody that has the record that he has of making not only the players around him better, but players that he coached better, other coaches that coached with him and learned from him better than than Duncan Thompson. It, it's it's crazy. It is. It is crazy. So, um, yeah, look, I suppose one last... Uh, bit of information there. He's one of the very few sportsmen that I know of, possibly the only one in, in rugby league anyway, to have two grandstands named after him um, in two different states. So he's got a grandstand named after him at Toowoomba and the other one's at North Sydney Oval. Oh, really? That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of anyone else, especially in rugby league, who's got that. Yeah. Because um, I don't think Clive Churchill has. I think he's got. I think there's a Churchill stand at the SCG. Yep. I don't think there's one anywhere else. Um, and was there? I I might be wrong in this. Is uh is there a Langlands Park or something up in Queensland somewhere? Mm, don't know. I might be wrong with that. I'll have to look it up after the podcast. Yeah, that's a good question. 
So there you go. It's um, there, there's a look at at who I believe should be the next immortal. Yeah, and it's a really good case, and I agree one hundred percent. Um, we talk a lot these days, well, we don't, but the media does about who should be the next immortal. And they always talk about players that seemingly have retired in the last three weeks. Um, you know, I, I, and I've, I was very happy to see the immortals concept, um, expanded to pre world war two players as well, because for it to be post world war two players, I thought was ridiculous. Um, this is another case where a, a wrong needs to be fixed with the Immortals concept, and, and this is obviously one of them. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, as I said before, like there's there's two others who should be in that conversation as well who we might try and do an episode on them too later on, and that's uh, Jimmy Craig, mm-hmm. um, and the other one is Arthur Halloway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Arthur, Holloway, Arthur Holloway is the most successful coach in the game's history. Which, uh, and we, I'm sorry, you know, when we're talking about premierships, one. Yeah, and I mean, when you think about some of the people we've talked about today, and you can say that his his record is the best. I mean, that's that says it all. Exactly, I mean, he had a very long playing career too, so you know. It's it's all well and good to be discussing about Thurston and Lockyer and Cronk and the likes about being the next immortal, but as far as I'm concerned, they can all wait. We've still got unfinished business from the pre World War Two days. I agree. One hundred. It's not like I'm trying to get fifteen, twenty people inducted from that period. I'm not. I I just think that there could be three, maybe four players from that pre World War Two period, mm-hmm. and that's not many that need to be put into the Immortals list. Yeah, and, I mean, their records speak for themselves. Like, these aren't just people that have good records or above-average records. Their records stand out uh, like a statistical anomaly. Like, you look at it and you think, man, there's a typo here somewhere with Mm. what these people have achieved. Uh, and, and it needs to be revisited before we start looking at anybody that's played in the last 30 years. Fully agree. Fully agree. And uh, I suppose on that note, we've wrapped up a pretty pretty good episode there. Um, have we had any emails that aren't going to take an entire episode to read out? No. No. Okay. There's been no comments either. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> I want to say... I was going to say, we're giving you anger at media. We're giving you discussion about the current game. We're giving you history. The problem is the the emails we're getting are massive. If you want your email read out, it's got to be quick, sharp, to the point. Yeah. We're going to have to do an episode on those emails soon, aren't we? Yeah, they're they're huge. They're absolutely huge. That's what Um, she said. (laughs) And on that note, I want to say, if you've enjoyed talking or listening about... Uh, rugby league history i want you to go to patreon.com forward slash rl project get on board with the rugby league project patreon uh it's all about the digitization of rugby league history and it's a really important thing for the game overall uh this is stuff that everybody that's a rugby league fan clubs the games administration everyone should be on board with because it's a really part important part of the game. Uh, Rugby League Project is a resource that we have all used, every single one of us, and we should all contribute to that every chance we possibly can. Um, it's a fantastic website. It is the biggest Rugby League website in the entire world. I use it all the time. It's my favourite Rugby League website, and I would just... Anybody that can, it you just can one dollar a month. It would be fantastic if you could contribute to that, because you know it, it it really does a great service for the game and the game around the entire world as well. Yes, yeah, speaking. Of, I mean, today I put in the results of the 1922 and 1924 Australian Universities tour to New Zealand. That's amazing. It's like. And the different layers that are added to it, and it's growing all the time. And 
yeah. I just love it. It's fantastic. It really is. You should really everybody involved and you, of course, are, are the main contributor to the to the website. Should everyone should be proud of what it's become? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's a great, it's the greatest hobby ever. So um, yeah, and look, while we're at it, obviously, League Frank's given us some some uh, some good opinion even on these history episodes. It's the uh, the best opinion you're going to get out there. So get over to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Freak and give him a coffee a month, just three bucks. Yeah, it's not much. Copper. Yeah, and in return, he'll he'll bung your name up on his website. Yeah, everyone's name is on the website. I uh, I add your Twitter account so people can see who you are if you're yeah, a contributor. You'd be famous. You get a ton of followers, and because his his website's been for, been around for ages, you'll probably rate pretty highly on a Google search too. When you Google your name, probably will. I didn't even think of that. Hey, yeah. shout to your kids, shout <laughs> to the grandkids. Yeah, yeah. Look, my I web's... paid three bucks a month, and I come up second on a Google search. <laughs> it says I'm a freak. Yeah, yeah. Ladies, I'm a freak. And I'll, I'll put whatever name you want on there. Listen, if you've got a company, I'll put your company's name on there as well. Um. So, yeah, get involved. And, yeah, my website's been around. It, that website has been around since uh, 2003, I believe, I started longer, making it. The end of, longer than the Rugby League Project's been around. Yeah, longer than Google. Longer than the internet. Well, not quite that long. <laughs> Do you might know my first Rugby League website I started uh, at the end of 1997? Man, you've been in this game for too long. I know. I've made... <laughs> I've made millions of dollars out of it too. Oh wait, no, that's everyone else that was making websites back then. Pesos, yeah, pesos. <laughs> All right, well, uh, on those magnificent notes, thanks for tuning in, people. If you want to get involved in some conversation with us, you can hit us up on Twitter at Virgo Freak Pod. Um, if you want to look at some some dodgy photos, you can go to Instagram and check out Fergo Freak Pod there. We're on Facebook, we're on YouTube. Subscribe, like, all that sort of stuff. Please leave us some comments, some, some nice friendly ones with a, with a five-star comment there and some reviews, and we'll read them out. We'll put them on our Fergo and the Freak website as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're giving you so much. Just give us a little nice word in return. That's all we ask. That would be nice. Yeah. And uh, thanks for tuning in, people. Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll catch you all next time.